Good evening. Thank you, Kelly and Kelsey and Levi. My grandfather played the banjo, and so it was always kind of special to me. Unfortunately, apparently, he didn't pass on all those genes to me because I can't play anything, but I always appreciate those who can. I have to confess from the mor- this morning, and you're going to find this difficult to believe, I know, but I made a mistake. Some complained to me after the morning message, as you can imagine, that I used the wrong passage. Your notes said that it was chapter 12, and indeed it was chapter 13. Some of you never noticed. That's even sadder. So now I don't want to speak to you about missions. And for those of you that happen to be our guest this evening, I would apologize only in the sense that I, I hate for anybody to ever think that all preachers ever do is talk about money and giving. I don't think that's the case at all here. In fact, there is one time a year, that is the Sunday in which we have our global emphasis and we take our faith promise that we really talk about money, and that happens to be next Sunday morning. We talked about missions this morning, but I also wanted to talk for a little while this evening about missions. One man has written, the Bible is a missionary book throughout. The main line of argument that binds all of it together is the unfolding and gradual execution of a missionary purpose. Well, I want you to notice with me, first of all, this evening, the notice Israel's missionary mandate. <clears throat> when, call, when God called Abraham, and he was told that he was to be blessed, and that he was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, in Genesis chapter 12, it was the start of what God had intended as Israel's task to be God's light to the world. Their calling in life was not just to enjoy a special relationship with God as his chosen people, but they were chosen to carry the truth of the existence of the true God. This mandate to Israel can be traced through many passages in the Old Testament, and they were constantly given as a reminder to Israel of the purpose of their being chosen. I only chosen one of those passages to share with you tonight, Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6 says, indeed he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. But in spite of their often repeated reminders in Scripture of the course of centuries, Israel lost sight of their purpose. Perhaps the greatest scandal in the Old Testament is that Israel tried to be blessed without trying very hard to be a blessing. Second point that I want to share with you is the church's missionary mandate. After the coming of Christ, his church is given the task of carrying the gospel to all the lands of the world. 
As the missionary mandate is the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. It says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in fact, the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he returned to heaven was a reminder of that task. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 we read, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But unfortunately, over the course of time, the church also lost its vision for reaching the world for Christ. And even after the Reformation, the church failed to return to its missionary calling. Which brings us to the third point, and that is the modern missionary movement. There are three time periods that are crucial in the missionary movement. The first period is called the Coastal Period. William Carey, in 1792, he was considered the father of modern missions. William Carey was an English cobbler, that means he made shoes, and he was a bivocational Baptist pastor. He was not yet 30 years old when he got into trouble when he began to take the Great Commission seriously. When he had the opportunity to address a group of his minister friends, he challenged them to give a reason why the Great Commission did not apply to them. They rebuked him by saying simply, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do so without consulting either you or me. He was not allowed to speak on the subject again, so he wrote his analysis. It was entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. That's a mouthful in the title. This little book became the Magna Carta of the Baptist and Protestant Mission Movement. In 1792, he preached his renowned sermon on Isaiah 54 and verses 2 and 3, Expect Great Things from God. Attempt great things for God. And although his life was filled with many difficulties and hardships, there were many lasting results. During the 25 years after Carey sailed to India, a dozen missionary sending agencies were formed on both sides of the Atlantic. Carey was instrumental in translating the Bible into 48 European languages, Eastern languages, which meant that over 30% of the world's population of his time had access to the Bible. He was also instrumental in founding 103 Christian schools, which had over 6,700 students, and he founded the first Christian college in Asia. The second time period, called the Inland Period, is associated with Hudson Taylor in 1865. He had Many of the same problems that his predecessor did, William Carey. 
He founded the in, Inland China Mission, and he spent 51 years in China. The society he began was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to China, which began 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 Christians who were converted, as well as the establishment of more than 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in 18 provinces. The third time period, often returned to as the unreached people groups, is associated with Cameron Townsend. He's the man who founded the Week of Bible Translators and the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which are both still in existence, and both groups are still focused on producing translations of the Bible into minority languages. In fact, it is translating the Bible into languages where many of them do not have a written language at all. They're having to construct the written language as they go. I say those just to give you an introduction to our mission program. First Baptist Church supports missionaries and missionary groups through 17 different missions organizations, sending agencies, parachurch organizations, local sending churches. We support missionaries through the Baptist Bible Fellowship International, through the Baptist International Missions, Central Missionary Clearinghouse, Independent Baptist Missions for Asians, Independent Baptist Missions for India, and even one through the Evangelical Free Missions. We in total support 61 missionaries and missionary projects and programs around the world. The fourth thing that I want to talk to you, and if you have your Bible tonight, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to speak to you for a few minutes about the Faith Promise Missionary Program. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm pretty sure that's right. 1 Corinthians, not, 2 Corinthians is right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to be reading this to you tonight from the New International Version. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Well, first of all, I want to talk about the principle of faith promise. The, the faith promise plan of giving to missions is not something new. The Faith Promise Plan as we know it was developed in the 1800s by Dr. A.B. Simpson, a founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, Dr. Oswald Smith, pastor of the People's Church in Toronto, Canada, is given credit for reviving that method in modern times. And most of you know that Dr. Clifford Clark, who was our guest many times here, was also credited for introducing the Faith Promise Plan in independent Baptist works. What is it anyway? Well, first of all, it's a promise to give. Faith promise giving is a method of missionary giving used by our church, which allows individuals and families to give to missions through this local church. After prayerful consideration, 
a promise is made to contribute a certain amount of money, either weekly or monthly, to the missionary fund. FBC began using the Faith Promise uh, Missionary Plan in 1990, and at that time we made a commitment of $35,000. Last year the commitment was was $133,240, and I'm proud to say that because of your faithfulness, the level of fulfillment was over 100%. We actually had $24 more than was pledged. I will tell you that doesn't happen too often in too many places. Secondly, I want you to note it's an act of faith. There are two major ways that an offering or given the missions. First, there's always the possibility of a, of a cash offering. But it doesn't take faith to look in your pocket and say, I've got $10, give that $10. All you have to do is determine what you have and give it as a gift. You don't have to trust God for it. You just have to give it. On the other hand, the demand of faith promise giving is different. One first has to pray and ask God what he would have you to give, and then you have to trust him to give it to you in order for you to be able to supply it. Week by week, you have to go to the Lord and ask him for the amount that you, that you promised and wait for him to give it to you in order that you might give it. Now, of those two plans, which one do you really think that God would bless? The one that demands no faith or the one that demands faith? God's Word says that the just shall live by faith. Not just the missionary shall live by faith. When we step out on faith and commit to an amount to give to missions, we are stepping out on faith. We're trusting God to provide. Now, I do want to just make a note that you note the difference between a pledge and a faith promise. A pledge is a transaction between you and a church. We don't try to do any pledges here, but some churches do. You have a card, you write down an amount on that card that you plan to contribute to the church over the next year, and then if you don't give it, maybe somebody comes to your door and says, Uh, Why haven't you given it? It is a pledge between you and the church. This, however, the faith promise is between you and God. You know what you pledged. I don't know what you pledged. And it is entirely up to you. If you're unable to pay, all you have to do is tell God. It is also a promise for a year. The Apostle Paul uh, took up a faith promise offering. We read about it here 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In fact, a reading of chapters 8 through 10 revealed that the Apostle Paul, because of the suffering and persecution that was going on in the city of Jerusalem, took up an offering. He got several churches to promise to give a certain amount to help. And then he would give the church a year to collect it, and when the year drew to a close, he would send Titus or someone to, to remind the church of the promise that they had made so that they would not be ashamed when he arrived to receive it. And at the end of the year, he would come and take that offering to Jerusalem. Faith promise, therefore, is a promise by faith that you will give a certain amount for the work of the Lord in the coming year. Now, what problems do we face 
with faith promise. Some people don't understand their obligations. The Macedonian church that's referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 did not give out of their abundance, but rather it says they gave out of their poverty. And I would make this note between indifference between what the Bible teaches and what many uh, Bible teachers and preachers on TV might tell you about. If you give by faith and you step out and you sow a seed that you're going to reap a benefit materially and you are going to prosper. You're going to be richer because you gave to the work of God. Well, that's not what this verse says at all. Verse 2 says that they gave out of their poverty and when it was over, they were still poor. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. God reminds us that we are never too poor to give to God what is His. The truth is that those who want to give always find a way. And those who don't want to give always find an excuse. We need to note that this giving is obedience in the face of trying circumstances. That their overwhelming abundance of joy and generous giving came out of extreme material poverty. The poverty uh, of the Macedonians was confirmed even by secular history. We're told that the Romans had taken all their gold and silver mines had taxed all their copper and iron smelting and had canceled their right to cut trees for shipbuilding and even had fought several several wars on Macedonian soil, leaving the Macedonians immensely poor. The Macedonians make it absolutely clear that our stewardship does not depend upon our circumstances. It depends upon the quality of our relationship with Christ. We give because like the Macedonians, we have been the recipients of his amazing grace. Now, I want you to notice the equation that Paul makes here. He says there are three parts to this equation that of the great trial of affliction and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. When Paul added those three factors together, the outcome was rich generosity. This is a mathematical equation that makes absolutely no sense to the world. It doesn't even make sense to Christians who are not surrendered. That affliction plus poverty equals generosity. The word generosity here means to be free from ulterior motives. It's uncalculating. It's just sheer, unadulterated joy of giving that that motivated their hearts. The Macedonian church, we're told, was able to give sacrificially because according to verse 5, they had first given of themselves. The root of their generosity is a consecrated heart. Paul says to his readers in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, 
Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. There are also many who only manage to give out of their abundance. Because their resources were so limited, it's highly likely that the amount the Macedonians collected was really not all that much. But in another sense, what they gave, when compared to their ability, surpassed any expectations. Because they were giving sacrificially, far beyond what they could afford to give or what they could even be reasonably expected to give. And they were doing so happily. God is not impressed by the amount of our giving as he is by the attitude of our giving. God is not impressed by the sum, but by the sacrifice. When Jesus went to the temple during his earthly ministry, he stood over against the treasury, watching people as they gave their offering. We're told that only one person's gift impressed him, and it was the gift of the poor widow. Mark chapter 12 and verse 44 records what Jesus said. He said, For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, even her whole livelihood. The account in Luke chapter 21 adds that she only gave two mites. Some of the old King James used the word pennies or pence. However you look at it, it was a very small amount of money. But since she had, that was all she had to live on, she had indeed given above her ability. The same principle of giving was evident in these Macedonian Christians. There is finally the promise of, of faith promise that I want us to look at. First of all, it's a chance for personal involvement. The fourth verse of 2 Corinthians 8 reveals that the people actually pleaded to be given the opportunity to give to this need. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Another translation of that would be begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the, of the saints. The Macedonians considered it a privilege to give to the aid of their brothers and sisters in need. Nobody compelled them to give. They did it of their own, even pleading with the apostles for the privilege of sharing in this way. Although the offering that's being talked about in this verse is an offering to help the poor of Jerusalem... The major thrust of the Macedonian giving was giving for missions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 7 through 9, we learn that it was the Macedonians who supported Paul financially when he preached in Corinth. The church that could least afford it was the church that helped to support this missionary as he carried out his work. It also has the potential to greatly increase our missionary support. 
simple economics <clears throat> dictates that we must increase the number of dollars taken in each year in order to take on new missionaries. That's just the simple facts of economics. Without more dollars, we can't take on more missionaries. Our old friend, Dr. Clifford Clark, used to say, a missions conference is the church in a business meeting deciding the fate of the heathen. I'm not limiting the sovereignty of God, but when we make our faith promise, we are voting on the salvation of the lost and whether it is important enough for us to give our dollars for it. A story is told that comes out of the Vietnam era. Charles Plum, a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, was a jet fighter pilot in Vietnam. After 75 combat missions, his plane was destroyed by a surface-to-air missile. Plum ejected and parachuted into enemy hands. He was captured and spent six years in a communist Vietnamese prison. He survived the ordeal, and he still speaks about the lessons that he learned from that experience. One day, when Plum and his wife were sitting in a restaurant, a man at another cable came up and said to him, You're Plum. You flew jet fighters in Vietnam from the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. You were shot down. Plum responded by saying, how in the world did you know that? The man said, I packed your parachute. Plum gasped in surprise and gratitude. The man pumped his hand and said, well, I guess it worked. And Plum assured him, it sure did. If your chute hadn't worked, I wouldn't be here today. Plum couldn't sleep that night thinking about that man. Plum said, I kept wondering what he might have looked like in a Navy uniform. I wondered how many times I might have seen him and even not said good morning, how are you, or anything else, because you see, I was a fighter pilot, and he was just a sailor. Plum thought of the many hours that sailor spent on a long wooden table in the bows of the ship, carefully weaving the shrouds and folding the silk of each chute, holding in his hands each time the fate of someone he did not know. In our missions conference, we do the same thing. We hold in our hands the fate of people we do not even know. Our giving allows our missionaries to, to live on the field, to devote their maximum amount of time to evangelism and establishing churches. Our giving helps provide the things our missionaries need to carry out effective ministry, vehicles and Bibles and tracts and gospel films, and etc. I close with this <clears throat> poem entitled, If I Were You. If you were lost in the darkness and night with no one to show you the way, would you want someone to bring the light? Wouldn't you want it today? If no one had told you of Jesus at all, his love, his compassion, his death, 
Uh, wouldn't you want the message to come before you draw drawn your last breath? If sinking and evil traditions you were, bound by what you believed, helpless and hopeless, oh, wouldn't you want a chance at least to be free? Would you want them to wait while they built new homes, paid for a still better car, or while making a home base a more elegant place before sending the message afar? Would you want them to table plans that were made to expand on missions this year because of conditions around the world and days of uncertainty here? Would you want them to wait with the message of hope while you were dying and lost? Oh, I know that your answer would ring through the gloom. Please send it at any cost. So let's send it to the millions in need, the light that will show them the way. For if it were you in the darkness and night, you'd want it, and you'd want it today. Let's pray. Lord, what a glorious privilege it is to be on the side of giving. You have blessed us to live in this great country. You have made us prosperous because the poorest person in this place is richer than most of the people in our world. We have more benefits. We have more freedom. We have greater blessings. And for that, Lord, we thank you. But we also realize that great blessings bring great responsibility. So, Lord, help us to be responsible in how we use what you've given over to our care. None of it really belongs to us. We're only stewards. And as stewards, everything that we have belongs to you. And it is to you that we owe our faithfulness and our, our response and our responsibility. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we go into our global emphasis Sunday next week. I pray that you'd make our hearts pliable. Help us to be open and receptive to each person who comes. To our main speaker, Brother Dan Smith from Portugal. I pray that you'd help us to be receptive to the things he has to share with us. The patriot singers from Baptist Bible College, as they come and lead our worship, Lord, I pray our hearts would be open and ready. As the chaplains come from the prison system here in Arkansas, help us to see what a great opportunity that you have given us to be a part of reaching out into the prisons in Arkansas. And the great blessings we've already seen from our ladies who are involved in that ministry. Lord, we, we pray that you give us a burden for the lost. We pray that you help us to know what we are to do. And we pray that we would do our part. It may be, Father, that there's someone here tonight that doesn't know you in a personal and intimate way. They have never stopped long enough to admit that they are a sinner just like all the rest of us. And that that sin separates them from a holy God. But that Jesus Christ came. He lived a life 
that was free from sin in order that he might pay the penalty for our sin on the cross of Calvary. And that all we have to do is repent of our sin, that is, agree with you about the nature of our sin, and turn to you and ask that you would forgive us of our sins. And we know that you will. And if there's one here today that needs that, then, Lord, I pray that you'd guide them. And I pray that today, tonight, might be the time of decision. For all the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you'd guide and direct us as we head into our missions emphasis. I pray that each one here will be back on Sunday and bring somebody with them in order that they might also enjoy that uh, time with our missionaries. But Lord, whatever you want to do in our hearts tonight, we want to give this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.